Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. Happy Mother's Day. How are you? All right, let's go. Romans chapter 4 is where we left off when we were in Romans most recently a couple weeks ago, and this is where we're picking back up today in this beautiful letter of Romans that Paul writes that is one of the mountain peaks of Scripture, and we're going to handle verses 1 through 8 today, and there's a verse, particularly verse 5, that is one of the absolute crests of all of Scripture, and I can't wait to get into it with you. As you're finding Romans chapter 4, as always, if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use one of the Bibles in front of you. If you don't own one, please keep that as our gift to you and, and read that Bible. And we'd love for you to come back and be part of this church. And if this isn't the right place for you, then we want you to find another Bible-believing, gospel-exalting church in our area. We're grateful that you're here this morning. We pray that the Lord would encourage you and, and show you wonderful things from, from, his, from his word. Before we read verses 1 through 8, I want to put a picture in your mind. Um, I love, you guys know that I love British things, um, whether it's Dead Preachers or Downton Abbey. Yes, I love that show, and I just heard the other day that they're going to make a movie about Downton Abbey, and I cannot wait. I see another Anglophile here in the audience, Joseph Davis. And I love the BBC special Planet Earth. I, I cannot get enough of it. The videography, the narrator is just spectacular. A couple months ago, they came out with Planet Earth 2, and I was just taken by the beauty of the creation. And there was this one particular episode that had these three-toed sloths and some island in the Pacific, and basically it's these, these trees that are just cropping up above the water, and these sloths live on these trees, and these trees are sort of connected with this root system, but basically their kind of water is above the ground, and the sloths live in the trees, and they eat this fruit, and to get from one tree to another, in fact, this one particular episode was highlighting this male sloth who heard the mating call of a female sloth, and so he was going down into the water to swim across to another tree, and I don't know who the guy is with the underwater camera that captures this, but it was beautiful. It was breathtaking, and watching this remote tree island somewhere in the distant Pacific caused me to consider the grandeur and the holiness of our creator God who made all of this that maybe human eyes would never actually see, all for the display of his magnificent glory. And then I thought that everybody in this room, and in fact the scripture tells us every person in the world will stand before that holy creator God someday. And what will be our plea? What will commend us to that great and holy and awesome God? What can make us right? And that's what our text is about this morning. In fact, that's what the whole book of Romans is about. But 
Uh, Paul zeroes in on that in Romans 4, 1 through 8. Let me read, and then we will pray. If you're a note taker, I don't have anything on the screen today. By the way, I know some of you are like, really, where are we going? What's going to happen? What's the outline? I just want us to zero in on one truth. Here's the truth. God justifies the ungodly. That's the point of Romans. That's the point of what we've been talking about in Romans 3. Paul's going to zero in on it in Romans 4. We're going to stare at that truth, and then we're going to make application to our lives. So I want you to be free to just rest and listen and have the Spirit of God use my feeble words to stir affection for you, for Jesus, or faith in him for the first time. Let me read. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Okay, let's pray, and then let's dive into it. Lord, uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for, for, for causing your Holy Spirit to move upon men through the centuries to write down exactly what you intended for us and causing it to be faithfully translated into our language so we could hear it. And Lord, with your word comes your authority and your Power and you speak to us and you spoke the worlds into existence through your word. Jesus becomes the incarnate word, the, the very living word. Jesus speaks the word over the tomb of Lazarus and he comes back to life and you speak your word into our hearts this morning to bring life, to bring life where there was death, to bring faith where there was no hope and to bring courage and strength and in these dark days, so Lord, do your work and your will through your word as your spirit attends your word for your glory and for our good. And I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's stare again at, at these eight verses, and we're just going to kind of work through it. And, and what you need to know if you're with us for the first time today, maybe visiting your mom from out of town or, or just here for the first time, that we've been working through this great letter of Romans where Paul is establishing an argument. And it was a letter that would have been read all at one time to the recipients, the early Christians in Rome. And somebody would knock on the door and deliver this letter and read it to the church. And so sometimes it's helpful to just sit down and read the whole letter so you get an understanding of the message of Romans. And up to this point, Paul has been making the case that all of humanity... Whether they were God's chosen people in the Old Testament, the Jews who received God's written revelation in the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, and all of the other commandments of the Old Testament that showed God's people specifically how he wanted them to live so that they would be a display to an onlooking world of his glory, or whether it was just Gentiles, people who were not 
ethnically part of God's chosen people, the Jews, that all of them, even by the way, they should be able to see the glory of creation and it should push them to know God. Paul's point is that all people, whether religious or non-religious, whether Jew or Gentile, have all rebelled against God and have fallen short of his glory. But God, in his kindness, has put Jesus, his son, forward to be a wrath-absorbing sacrifice to take away his wrath that was rightly bearing down on Jew and Gentile, all sinners of all tribes and every tongue and every nation. Jesus has come to satisfy God's wrath, to justify, to make right a sinful people with a holy God. And it only applies to those who are given the gift of faith by God and then put that faith in Christ alone. That's his argument up to this point. And now in chapter 4, Paul is not going to be moving anything forward in the argument. He's not giving us anything new. He's actually just zeroing down in on the same point. And so there's nothing really new in these first eight verses of Romans chapter four. And you may be tempted to say, well, I've heard this before. I mean, I don't really need to pay attention now if I've been around Crosspoint for a while. Stop it, stop it. Because you, we can download and binge on Netflix series that we've watched more than once, right? Isn't it even better for us to dwell again and again on the greatest news in all the earth? And Paul is now going to zero and he's going to say, okay, he's speaking, I think, specifically in chapter 4 to ethnic Jews. And he's saying, oh, you don't believe me? You're not convinced that you are not made right by your own righteousness? Let me take two examples from the Old Testament, the two greatest maybe from the Old Testament, Abraham and David, and let me prove it to you from their lives. And so it's a kind of case study of these Old Testament saints about how even they were justified not by their own innate goodness, but by a sovereign God who justifies ungodly people like Abraham and David and whosoever else will trust in him. So let's look again. Verse 1, he says, What shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham and every Jew that would have been hearing this letter would have instantly recognized and certainly would have grown up believing that Abraham was the father, certainly he was, the father of Israel, the father of God's people. For if Abraham was justified by works, meaning if Abraham was made right with God by the things that he did, by his obedience to God, by his response to God, then he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And what Paul does here in verse 3 is he quotes Genesis 15, 6, and he says, for what does scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's almost a direct quote. In fact, let me read Genesis chapter 15. And what's happening in Genesis chapter 15 is God has already called Abraham, and we're going to think about that in just a second. Abraham was a, a, a pagan, non-God-worshipping man just wandering out in the desert with his family, and not because of anything good in Abraham. 
God comes to this man at this time named Abram and chooses him and sovereignly puts his love on him and says, Abram, I am going to make you my man. Not because you were looking for me, but because I have come to you. He does this in Genesis chapter 12. And he calls Abraham and he says, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you a bunch of kids. And through your family, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. And then God begins to do that. And then Genesis chapter 15, God reaffirms and further specifies this covenant, this 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 sovereign deal that he is making with Abraham. And it says in verse 6 that Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And so that's what Paul is picking up on here. Paul is speaking of that verse where God comes to Abraham and Abraham responds to God. He believes God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now it's important for us to realize before we move on just a little bit about Abraham. Abraham was not in and of himself a righteous man. It's not like Abraham was looking for God and God responded to something in Abraham. Abraham, with his family, was wandering around in the desert worshiping false gods. Joshua chapter 24 later on uh, just confirms this for us. Don't flip there. Let me just read it to you. It'll be on the screen. Joshua, Joshua chapter 24, verses 1 through 3 says this. Joshua gathered... All the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. So this is hundreds of years later after Abraham, but Joshua is recounting the history of Israel in its very beginning. And in verse 2, Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Verse 3, Then I took your father Abraham, this is God speaking, from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac. And then it goes on to recount the history of Israel. Do you see what's happening there is Joshua in recounting the history of Israel is not that God was up there and the world had gone terribly awry after the Tower of Babel and all humanity is scattered. Humanity is scattered. And then there's this one guy out there that really proves himself to be be faithful. And so I'm going to come down and I'm going to respond to something in that guy. No, Abraham is just like his father wandering around in the desert worshiping other gods like every other human being at that time after the time of Babel. And God comes to Abraham and he puts his love in and on Abraham and selects him. The word there in Joshua 24 is God took Abraham out and said, I'm I'm your God, you're my man, let's do this. So Abraham is being lumped in here by Paul with All of the other ungodly people in the earth. This would have been stunning to a first century Jew. Abraham wasn't looking for God. God came for Abraham. God gave him grace. Unmerited grace. Free grace. Not based on anything in him, but 
simply because of God's choice, his grace in the life of Abraham. Now to verse 4 and 5. Verse 5 is one of the absolute most important, beautiful, majestic verses, a summary of the gospel in and of itself. Now to the one who works, in other words, the one who does things, who, who abides by the law, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. We all understand that, right? You hire somebody to do a job, and then you pay them for that job. They, they may say thank you, just out of sort of social courtesy, but you owe them that compensation. And Paul is contrasting here the difference between something that is earned and owed and something that is free and given. Verse 5, he says, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So in other words, the one who does not, in and of themselves, have anything to commend themselves, worthy to be compensated for, to be responded to by God, but simply believes in God, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So let's just stare at that verse for a moment, and then we're going to apply it to our lives. The first word there that I think we need to consider in verse 5 is that this word believes. Him who does not work but believes in him, meaning believes in God. This leads us to consider the nature of what it means to believe. Later on in that sentence, he calls it faith. His faith causes righteousness to be counted to that person. The nature of saving faith means, means more than just sort of believing something about. It's no more than a cognitive knowledge. Remember years ago when we first started Crosspoint, I used to use this illustration all the time about how um, I believe that Fidel Castro is the president of Cuba, but that doesn't make me a Cuban, right? You actually have to go there and declare allegiance. You have to put your hope, and I would do that all the time, and some sweet sister in the church came up to me and said, hey, Brad, um, did you know that Fidel Castro is actually not the, uh, the, the, the leader of Cuba now? Actually, it's his brother. And I'm like, sister, don't let facts get in the way of a good illustration. <laughs> but you get the point, right? Just a, what's in view here is not sort of a cognitive knowledge, but it's a putting, the faith that's in view here that, that receives is, is a, it's a, it's a hope. It's, it's, it's putting the weight of your future. It's putting the hope for your right standing with this one. Remember the image that we wanted to grain in our, our heads at the beginning of this text is, is we will all stand before God on one day. What will be our plea? What will be our hope that we were Jew or that we were a God-fearing Gentile or that we were a kid raised in the South in the Bible Belt or that we came from this family or that family or that we went through VBS or that we are a deacon or an elder or a pastor or whatever? No, none of those things are obligate God to pay us back is what Paul is saying here. It is 
simply by believing. And here, the Bible even whittles down, not in this text, but when we look at what the rest of the Bible says about the nature of this belief and faith, we realize, because we might be tempted to say, think, okay, well, then God's part is to freely give me something. My part is to bring belief to the table. We might be tempted to think that. And that sort of makes rational sense in our minds. But if we go down that road, then that becomes a despairing road because when is our faith good enough? When is our belief strong enough? And by the way, how do you get faith? Faith, friends, is not something that we bring to the table. Faith is a gift of God that he must give. We are completely dependent on him to give us the thing that he requires of us. Otherwise, our faith would merely be our work that we deserve wages for. That's why in another letter to another church in Ephesians, Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 9, he says, that we are saved by grace through faith, and it is a gift of God, lest anyone should boast. And so even the faith that we use to put the weight of our hope for right standing with God through the atoning work of his son must be given to us. It's not something that we naturally have because we are all by nature like Abraham. We are ungodly wandering in the desert. And Paul says that it is a gift. And then it says that he justifies the ungodly. What does that word justifies? It means that he makes right. It doesn't actually involve the process of becoming righteous. That's sanctification. We'll talk about how we need to understand the difference between those two in just a moment. But it is God declaring a guilty person innocent, not because they've done anything to commend themselves or have started the process, but because of his grace alone. It would be like a judge in a courtroom overriding all of the evidence that clearly indicts this criminal that stands before him and saying, I declare this person innocent. Not because they show any potential not because they come from a good family, not because my kid goes to school with their kid, not because of any sort of political connection, nothing, simply because of the sovereign grace of the judge. He declares, he calls, he treats guilty people as if they were righteous. <laughs> How does he do that? Well, the next word that we need to consider is, is that his faith is counted. That faith becomes the wire that receives the righteousness. It's like a wire. Think of like in the old times when people would speak through. I don't know if you guys, you're, it's amazing to think about this, but uh, boys and girls, for all of you under the age of 30, there used to be these things that actually hooked up to the wall. I know, it's crazy. And you'd pick it up and you'd dial. And there was an actual wire. This is crazy, I know. And it was connected to another thing hooked up to a wall. Like even across the other end of the country. And, there, and the voices would be transmitted, <laughs> crazy, through the wire 
And, and you could hear the other person. And Paul is saying that this wire, this telephone line that doesn't exist in all of us, that, but that God in his sovereignty installs in us by his grace, allows us to receive something, what? Righteousness. Where does that righteousness come from? It comes from outside of us, and it comes from Christ. So while all of us are guilty and sinners and ungodly, wandering around in our own personal deserts by our nature like Abraham, Jesus, God the Son, becomes a man. And he does not disobey God like Abraham and Adam and everybody after them, us included. Jesus completely obeys God and he is with God and dependent on God and righteous. And then Jesus lays down his life on the cross. This is the message of the gospel, friends. Hear this. Jesus lays down his life on the cross to absorb the punishment that God intended for us so that it would be satisfied, removed, now rises again from the grave, now justifying his holiness. And because he's justified before a holy God, he is righteous and holy and sovereign and reigning, and he can give the very thing that he has accomplished for his people. And Paul is saying, friends, I know, when we stare at this, we're like, really? This is the gospel? Yes! The, the phone line that God installs becomes the very thing that we receive now the righteousness of Christ. Now, ungodly Abraham is counted as righteous, not because he showed signs of promise, but because God came to him, installed and gave him the gift of faith. He laid the wire to receive the message and the very wire that God put in him now receives the righteousness that Christ won for all of his people on the cross. And now when God looks at that guilty sinner, he reckons him, he counts him as just. That's amazing. And, and that's all of us. We are all like Abraham, ungodly and unjust. And we may be tempted to think, okay, well, I, 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 might, I might not, I can see myself not being like Abraham. I'm kind of like a person, it's not like I have ever thought, I've never thought that I would possibly make myself right with God by my works. In fact, I'm actually falling off on the other side of the ditch. I'm wondering how a holy God could ever save somebody like me. And so for that example, he uses this Old Testament figure of David in verses 6 through 7 and 8. Listen to this. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. So Abraham's kind of a positive example. Here's this man that we might be tended to, we might tend to consider like worthy of something that God would give him. And Paul's saying, not even him. And then we would think of David as this, well, certainly a man after God's own heart, but maybe the most prominent sin that we can think of in the Old Testament. David commits adultery, covers it up with murder. And so now Paul takes it to the other side and saying that even the work that David has done, which is his sin, 
God reverses it, gives righteousness. So it says in verse 6, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, quoting from Psalm 32 here, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sins. You see, both sides of the street. Even the man who thinks is righteous, the religious legalist, is not made right by his works, but by the free grace of God who justifies the ungodly. The worst sinner in the world who thinks that they can never have their sins atoned for is not lost because of the weight of his sin, but is freely justified by God who makes the ungodly right. And all that leads us to this point, this great gospel truth, to ask this question, okay, Brad, I get this. And here's, here's the point. Here's why I think Paul is taking chapters to explain this great truth because we may be tempted, okay, Brad, I get it. I know we go to a church that exalts and heralds the gospel. We got, you know, John Piper and John Owen and Martin Luther and Charles Spurgeon books in the room over there that we can read and we, we get this. But how does this apply to our lives right now. How does this help us right now? Here's my answer to that question. Here's what I want to pause it, and we're going to spend some time just applying this to different people groups, even in this room, and then, then we'll be done. I think that all of us suffer from the same disease, and that disease is gospel amnesia. I think most of us in this room probably understand that truth, that we are justified by God's free grace and not by our works, but I find, at least in my own life, that is a very difficult and challenging truth to live from on a day-to-day -day basis, and I need to be reminded of it by you, by God's Word, by the community of God's people, daily and weekly. So here's my answer to that question of how does this apply to our lives right now? Think again of that day when we will all stand before God and what will be our plea. My proposition for us this morning is that living in the light of that day, capital D, and what will ultimately cause us to be commended to a God that is holy and just, that we have nothing to commend ourselves to, living in the light of that day, remembering that He, Christ, is our only plea on that day, helps me to live in this day. So remembering that day, capital D, helps me to live in light of, live in this day. Because we are all prone to forget what truly makes us right with the holy God. Listen to J.R. Vassar. He's a young pastor that planted a church in New York City, and he's now moved to Texas. And he wrote a book a few years ago called Glory, Hunger, God, the Gospel, and Our Quest for Something More. Tell me if you don't identify with what he writes very, very vulnerably here. He says, though I don't have a criminal record, I sit on trial every day in the court of human opinion, craving a positive verdict to be handed down on me from a jury of my peers. In other words, we're just, we forget true justification and we seek temporary justification. I'm constantly stacking up evidence 
trying to sway the court to bestow upon me its approval. I argue my case for people's acceptance and appreciation. I look to other people for any trace of hope or hint that I am perceived as important. I am hungry for recognition, affirmation, applause, and love to hear a yes spoken over me by everyone, sometimes anyone. And I fear hearing a no spoken over my life. With this desire for approval and acceptance comes an accompanying fear of rejection. I despise the thought of being invisible, unappreciated, and un, or unloved. The point being that here's a brother who's a Christian, who knows he's justified, who like us all is confessing his forgetfulness, his gospel amnesia, not living today in the light of that day, seeking temporary earthly justification and forgetting his ultimate justification. But when we stare at this truth that God justifies the ungodly, that frees us from all of these false, false avenues of receiving our worth. So a couple of thoughts. On this Mother's Day, I think about how difficult I think it is to be a woman in our culture in this day. I, I, think, I think it's actually been difficult to be a woman since Genesis 3. That's just what I gather from the Bible. And I think every time and culture and generation and century has its own challenges. I think in times past, it was probably more physically demanding to be a woman. But I think that there is a kind of insecurity of our age that wreaks havoc on the hearts of women. And just even in my own lifetime, I think it's harder to be a woman than, than probably it ever has been in a lot of ways. I think there is a kind of insecurity and competition amongst mothers and amongst young women. And, you know, you're not like the boys racing each other on the schoolyard or trying to outlift one another. But you're trying to outmother one another. You, we, you may be prone to seek your justification by whether or not your baby's eating kale and listening to Beethoven and already reading before they enter K3. And do you understand the damage that that can bring on your soul? And do you understand how this great truth that God justifies unworthy, ungodly people and makes them right can seem so distant when you're jealous of super Facebook mom. It's not just women. It's men. It's men driven by success. I have a friend that just seems so racked by and so driven to keep up with sort of his little subculture of people. And I've watched his life over the past 10 years or so, and I've watched it just be kind of tossed to and fro 
by his insecurity to keep up with this little subculture of people that he finds himself in. And it has caused him, I think, great emotional toil and strain because he's jumping from one thing to another, just trying to keep up with people that God never intended for him to have to keep up with. And so he's driven by these idols that, that dominate his life. And he's like Vassar and he's like all of us seeking somebody to just tell him that he is okay because he's living this day, small d, forgetting about that day, capital D. If we know that that day is solved, it frees us to pursue living out our ultimate justification by giving our lives away in this day. It's not, just, it's not just men driven by success. It's dads driven by the achievements of their children. It's dads validating themselves through the athletic accomplishments of their kids. Putting pressure on a kid, white-knuckling him, dragging him off to tutor session after tutor session to learn how to swing a club or hit a ball or throw a pass. Chalking it up as you loving that kid, but you're grinding him because really in that moment it's all about you and what everybody thinks about you. Maybe it's a, a parent with an unbelieving child or a wife whose husband is a million miles away from God and you've lost hope and, and you're wondering what you could have done better. And certainly there's times for introspection and repentance. I'm not saying that. But friends, this truth should lift our eyes because the good news of the gospel is that nobody is beyond God's reach. He justifies not the somewhat potential, you know, players, the people that might be good. He justifies the un godly. God delights in justifying the ungodly. Nobody's beyond his reach. Right now there's a parent who for the past decade there's been a dark cloud over your soul as you have lamented rightfully so the spiritual state of your child. And I want to say to you friends we, we, we can feel that, that that is legit. But friends I want you to see the hope in this text. The hope in this text is not some magic conversation or some specifically silver bullet word. It is a God who is rich in in mercy who delights in causing dead things to come to life. So put your hope in a God that justifies the ungodly and pray and storm the gates of heaven and have faith in God and believe in him who does all things well. Maybe... You're a single person longing to be married and you have this 30,000 foot doctrinal category of justification by faith. And you know on that day that you're going to be right with God because you're trusting in Jesus and walking in him. But functionally, your life is dominated and defined by whether or not you can find a spouse before you peek out of child rearing ages. And that is causing your heart to be wrecked. Friends, young ladies, you are not defined. You are not justified. Your eternity, which will go on forever, will not be defined by whether or not you get some guy to love you. 
Because when the greatest in all the universe loves you, not because of anything good in you, but simply because of his grace, it frees you from this need. I'm not saying that marriage is unimportant at all. I'm not saying that that's an unrighteous desire. I'm saying that the desire to be married is a righteous thing. It's a righteous thing, but it is a terrible master. Maybe, maybe you're in the military. Man, I remember this. We got a bunch of young guys doing training, going to ranger school, and you just you want that completion of that course. Do listen to me, young lieutenants. Do not define yourself by whether or not you make it through ranger school. Because if you do make it through ranger school and you put all of your hope in that thing, then there will be just another thing that you will gauge yourself by. Then you'll want to get deployed. Then you'll want to get a patch on your right shoulder showing that everybody else that you were deployed. Or then you'll want a combat infantryman badge or whatever the other non-combat, I mean the non-infantry guys, that little strange thing that you put on your, your uniform now, whatever. You'll want that. And you'll, you'll walk into every room with your uniform, showing everybody that you got a patch on your right shoulder. And the problem with that, and thank God for men that are willing to do that, but the problem with that is you see, you see what, a, what a taskmaster that temporary justification can be in our lives? It never delivers. It always wants more. God justifies the ungodly. You're not judged by a sergeant major or a colonel or a patch or a CIB, you are justified if you're in Christ by the only one who truly matters. And what does that do? It frees you to actually give your life away because now you're not needing the love of everybody else around you. You're not needing the approval of everybody around you. You're now free to actually give it. Do you see that? Maybe you're a pastor. And you wake up every Sunday and you walk into the sanctuary and you're just, are, are they going to show back up again? <laughs> that crazy little thing I said last week, ah, I got a couple emails, people I can tell. You interpret every little side I look like they're mad at you. Right? And I'm, I'm just speaking hypothetically. I don't know. I mean, I'm just... I'm just <laughs> Just heard this was the case for something. No, friends, this is me. I'm a wreck. I'm just an absolute wreck. Oh, gosh. And it is so easy to justify yourselves by the approval of man. And man, isn't it, isn't it, isn't it hard on everybody else when leaders are just leading organizations and they just have this sort of subconscious way around them where they're just basically saying, everybody, everybody, love me. Show me that I'm okay. Friends, that, that's gospel amnesia, and it is a dreadful tyrant. Oh, that God would free my heart of that, and all of our hearts of that. Friends, to some degree, it's all of us that live in this digital age, right? It's the perfect Instagram pose. It's the, just the right filter. And for those of us that want to be justified by the fact that we don't use Instagram filters, we do hashtag no filter so that we can be justified by the fact that we don't use filters like all of the other people that use filters. And for those of you that don't know what I'm talking about, you're better off. (laughs) 
here's the truth. Friends, God justifies the ungodly, which is all of us. We are Abraham, wandering lost in the desert. We are David, wrecking our lives. We are the woman in John 8 who deserves the wrath of God. That is us. But God justifies the ungodly. Well, I'll end with this quote. I'll give you three guesses who it's from, and the first two don't count. It's from (laughs) Charles Spurgeon. The first sermon I ever read of Charles Spurgeon years ago was a sermon on Romans 4, verse 5. And this is what Spurgeon says. Friends, this is such good news. This is for people that are in this room that came in unbelieving, that thought they were too far away from God or thought that they didn't need God. This is for people that came into this room knowing God, believing God, but like me who are so prone to be caught up in seeking our justification in other things. Spurgeon says this, May I therefore urge upon any who have no good thing about them, who fear that they have not even a good feeling or anything whatever that can recommend them to God, to firmly believe, and friends, that's given by God. It's not something that you generate. To firmly believe that our gracious God is able and willing, willing to take them without anything to recommend them and to forgive them spontaneously, not because they are good, but because he is good. (laughs) And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. Let that sink in your soul. And let it cause you to live in this day with that day in view. Let's pray. Father, what an incredible truth. I'm I'm not going to pray long and try and preach my sermon again in my prayer. I do that so often. It's so silly. Lord, go beyond my feeble words by your Holy Spirit and draw people to yourself right now for the first time and restore clarity and sight and affection in your people this morning. And may we worship you. May we find a corner in this sanctuary to cry out to you. May we sit in our chair and repent. May we lift our hands in exaltation. May we respond to your word by your spirit now as we sing or pray or repent. Lord, do what I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.